0: The following recording is a production of WUTZ 88.3 FM on the farm in Summertown, Tennessee.
1: Welcome to The Mystic and the Skeptic, the show that asks the tough questions and explores different alternatives to today's pressing issues, theories, or enigmas.
0: A podcast devoted to the exploration of all things mystical, philosophical, scientific, political, conspiratorial, and cosmic. Join us in an exploration of the Mystic Skeptic Mindspace.
1: In this week's show, we continue our discussion of early Christianity, Greco-Roman culture, and Gnosticism with Robert Connor. He's the author of Resurrection or Ghost Story, available on Scribd. And he's also the author of Jesus the Sorcerer and the website Magic and Christianity. His articles, The Romans Meet Jesus and Faking Jesus, are featured on thisinfo.com. This show will be aired in two parts. Next week, we will discuss with him the controversy around the enigmatic document called the Secret Gospel of Mark. We also discuss the gospel bird narratives, which have many parallels in different cultures. In our previous show, when we had Robert Connor as our guest, we discussed the topic Magic and the Supernatural in the early church, focusing on Jesus' relation to Greek culture and how the Apostle Paul borrowed ideas for some of the mystery cults in the Mediterranean. We also discuss sorcery and demonology in the Greco-Roman culture of that time. This episode is very controversial in nature, especially as our guest shares information that can be misconstrued by some. We hope to be sensitive to people of the Christian faith, and the show is not an attack against their beliefs. Instead, it's part of our research on topics related to objective truth. And having someone who has studied the history, the text, and the different scholarly views regarding this ancient religion, we hope to come to a better understanding of what was going on at that time. We appreciate the opportunity to discuss topics in an open forum. We hope that this can serve as an example of free speech and the ability to gain understanding from different perspectives. The title of this week's show is "Ghost and Resurrection Stories in the Ancient World. During our program, we discuss different types of ghost stories in the ancient world. He shared how modern ghost stories are influenced by ancient ones and described the documented apparitions of different characters in Roman culture, which have many parallels to the resurrection stories in the New Testament. Here is independent researcher Robert Connor. I really enjoyed your uh, article. What would you say to critics that would see your research as part of an anti-supernatural perspective uh, for Christians or people from any faith, Um, a, a quick way to undermine Um, any scientific or critical uh, view of their perspective is to say, well, they're just anti-supernatural. If they believed in the supernatural, then they would be open to all these narratives. Uh, What would be your response to that?
0: Well, I think that my approach to the text is... To look at the to look at it as a text that is influenced by other text. And if you as the article points out without getting into huge detail about it, uh, there are plenty of other texts that that are similar or relate to this in that they set up a genre, a ghost story type of Narrative that is pervasive throughout the culture, and I don't think it's accidental that you find these same elements in the Gospels of John and Luke, in particular. And in terms of undermining supernaturalism, I don't think that that. Uh, I or other people are necessarily out on a crusade to demolish supernaturalism, per se. But the supernaturalism is, is kind of a misnomer, because if there really is such a thing as, say, life after death, and it's not supernatural, it's natural. If there's such a thing as telepathy, then it's not supernatural or paranormal. It's normal because it's a part of the universe that we confront and we could potentially study. So by calling something uh, that is out of the ordinary paranormal or supernatural, it's kind of bracketing that off as as being, uh, say, special in some way, in which it may not actually, it may not be that special. It may just be something that is rare or something that occurs unusually or under only a particular set of circumstances. So having said that, uh, and going back to the specific points about um, the, the supernatural quote-unquote elements of the Gospels. I would, I would say that to illustrate this, for example, and how this would work, let us say that you were in a creative writing class. I think you would discover that most of it wouldn't be very creative and some of it wouldn't qualify as writing, but let's call it creative writing. And someone said, I want you to write vampire story. I mean, you would already know all the parameters of a vampire story, right? You would know that, you know, they don't have a reflection in a mirror, they come out at night, they can't be exposed to sunlight, etc, etc. Even without being a big fan of vampire stories, you would understand what was expected, basically. You would understand the limits, the framework of a vampire story. That's what makes it a genre. It doesn't mean that it can't be played with around the edges, that it can't even be undermined, uh, that it can't be uh, turned in a humorous direction or something of that nature, but it still has to conform to certain narrative standards that have, that have evolved in society. I, I was overhearing a program that somebody was watching a, a true crime, and it said that the, the victim is found face down in a pool of blood, for example why aren't they ever found face-up? <laughs> Doesn't it seem like at least like a 50-50 chance that, that if a person falls down, they would fall down face-up? But think about the crime programs that you've seen where the detective comes in and, and they find the victim and how is the victim usually laying? They're usually laying face-down, right, in a pool of blood. It's become like this standard uh, thing, this standard piece of narrative that is just out there there's another one that that really almost irritates me whenever somebody on the news reports a shooting what do they say shots rang out really rang out how like like a phone rings Uh, how about a bell do they ring out like a bell shots don't ring out Anybody who has heard gunfire doesn't describe it as ringing out. We don't say firecrackers ring out, do we? It's just one of these narrative elements that has evolved within our culture, and people simply repeat it. They just pick it up without thinking about it. And I think the same thing very much happens in the Gospels of Luke and John with the with the post-mortem appearances of Jesus, it's not that they're sitting down with ghost stories and selecting little bits and pieces like copying and pasting. They're simply tuning into a broad, universal, cultural experience of what a, a post-mortem narrative looks like. So we come up with all the different elements that way that are, that are listed in the Gospels and that you can go back and forth between Gospels and between ghost stories and you can say, yes, this matches, this matches, this matches, and all this kind of comes together. But it doesn't mean that they were plagiarizing it specifically, like, like some undergraduate student who is desperate to complete his paper. Does that, that kind of answer the question? Or?
1: So if it is them using common language or common metaphor to convey a religious concepts, when you're dealing with fundamentalists or evangelicals, do you see people struggling with this?
0: They'd simply take it as a matter of faith, which means it doesn't have to be proven. It doesn't have to be spelled out. There doesn't have to be evidence. It doesn't have to be duplicated. So the historical attitude is basically, it's a probabilistic attitude. It's, it's like, what's more likely that Jesus rose from the dead and appeared in a room where the doors were locked and had somebody stick their finger in his side? Or is it more probable? that these elements came from a broader cultural understanding of what dead people do when they show up. And that, and that raises another question about, about cultures because in writing about magic in early Christianity and, and working through, for example, the Greek magical papyri, I have to stop and remind myself from time to time just how weird this this view of the world is. The people of Jesus' day, pagans, probably as well as many Christians, had believed that the underworld was literally under your feet. That there were caverns, there were caves, grottos, there were certain lakes where probably methane or something else was occasionally escaping and killing wildlife. Birds would fly over it, drop into the water dead. And, and the ancients observed these things and thought that these were literal gates into the underworld. When a magician would, would conjure up the gods of the underworld He meant literally the gods that are under our world. It's like you were walking around in a world that had a sub-basement and a basement below that and below that. Circles of hell, if you wish. That's a very strange thing to believe from a modern standpoint, although at the time, obviously, it made sense to a lot of people. If you look at Paul in Corinthians writing about, I know a man who went up to the third heaven, it reflects a a standard view of the world that the seven planets were in different levels, representing different levels of heaven, and that you could go up and you could come down. You could go down to the underworld and you could tour around and then you could come back up. That's a strange view of the world, that's not a view of the world that probably any sane individual has today we, we understand that it's 93 million miles from here to the sun that the, the sky is not that the stars at night are not up in something called the Empyrean where they're just kind of the, the light is kind of coming through little holes in a canopy or something the, the idea that you could walk down into hell or into, the, into Hades through a cave would qualify you as, as basically insane today. No one, I don't believe, actually accepts that. No one actually walking around holding a job probably believes any of that. But that was actually what people believed. They believed that you could go to a graveyard, dig a hole in the ground, stick a message, and the dirt covered up and dead people would read it so I think that, that we do a lot of, of reading of these texts through a filter in which we take the meaning of these texts, and we take what they say and we kind of filter out the craziness of it we, kind of, we bring it into our time we're almost like each one of us is an editor who is adapting this text to his own worldview without realizing that the author of that text did not have that worldview. The author of this text didn't know that the the earth is three point whatever billion years old it is. He didn't realize that that there was a speed of light. He didn't realize that there were these planets were millions of miles away, not just up in the sky so a modern person reading these texts has to stop and remind himself I think of of how strange these texts actually are including the texts in the Bible that the things that these people assume that they take for granted are nothing like what the average person today assumes about the world so from that standpoint, I would say that, you know, it's 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 kind of almost hard to truly relate to anything in the Bible because you can't really walk yourself back into that that mindset. You can't forget all of the things that you know about the world and pretend you don't know them, so as to truly get back into that. And that's kind of the fraudulent view when you see churches talking about, oh, we preach New Testament Christianity, and I think, like hell, you do. <laughs> you 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 don't believe what people believed two thousand years ago. You don't believe that demons cause measles. Come on. You you can't you can't sit there and with a straight face tell anybody that. That you that you believe what the apostles believed? Really? Are you sure? I mean, have you have you, you have you forgotten all of the all of the science, the basic stuff, the biology, everything else that you that you learned in grade school? Has all that been miraculously you know, lifted right out of your head? Because because no, you don't believe that. You don't have that same view of the world. You don't even start from anywhere close to the same place as these people did. But when you read those texts, you read them into your experience, not into their experience, I guess is what I'm saying.
1: During our last conversation, uh, we talked about the Apostle Paul borrowing ideas from other groups. Um, Is your position that the mystery religions influence the writing of the New Testament because some apologetic uh, Christian groups they would say that w- the similarities that you can see are is that the mystery religions borrow stuff from the New Testament instead of the other way around because of the dating of some of those sources. Uh, how do you feel about that perspective?
0: I'm not a I'm not an expert on mystery religions. I think that first of all, that you have to take the scant amount of writing that we have that survives that directly addresses the mystery religions. And it's very scant for a reason. They were mysteries. And they were supposed to be secretive. It was actually against the law to reveal the mysteries of, say, Eleusis. And that, that went on for like 2,000 years, and we do not have a, a clear explanation of it. The only real explanation or, or mention of it that we have that mentions specifics, as far as I know, comes out of early church fathers who were revealing these secrets in order to make fun of them and refute them so the idea that the mystery religions borrowed from christianity i think is is easily disprovable i think that's that's patently false but again it's not like it's not like paul or someone else had to go around plagiarizing lifting texts verbatim or ideas verbatim from the mystery religions the whole idea of mysteries being revealed was obviously pretty common in the first century, and and Paul is always sexing things up, as it were, by describing them as mysteries. the The union of Christ and the church is a mystery, and the recalcitrance and stubbornness of the Jews is a mystery, and the the mystery of the man of lawlessness, and this mystery and that mystery so it was considered obviously um, attractive from a standpoint of recruiting people to toss that term mystery in there that secrets will be revealed it's kind of like you know somebody opening a safe after 100 years to see what's in it and, and that kind of that kind of thing is pretty much i think standard uh Religious talk in the first century. So, so no, I don't. I don't think that there was necessarily a, a a deliberate plagiarizing of. it. it's just that the the terminology is so common that it just it floats into everything.
1: Let's go to the topic of our, of our show today. Um, tell us about the different types of ghost stories in the Roman world. In has has someone categorized them I know that you talked about different types of ghosts um, but what what are we looking for and and what can we find that is similar to what is dis- discussed in the New Testament?
0: Well if somebody wanted a perfect book uh, description of ghost stories uh, there's a scholar named Debbie Felton who published a uh, study of greco-roman, Stories through University of Texas Press back, God I don't know, ten years or more ago, and and that's a remarkably good study of the of the basic narrative of the Greco-Roman ghost story. In terms of matching those up with the uh, with the gospel accounts. The idea that ghosts would come back, for instance, and show the wounds that had killed them. Such as Jesus coming back in, in the Gospel of John in particular and telling them to see, touch me, look, see these wounds. This was, this was not uncommon in ghost stories. This was a feature of ghost stories at the time. The idea of sudden appearance and disappearance was also a feature of it. There's a, a story in Lucian's uh, Lover of Lies, where this uh, where the person who is uh, hosting this symposium, where people talking about these you know the fantastic stories, talks about his own wife coming back from the dead to get a slipper. A golden slipper that he had forgotten to burn, because the idea was you burned everybody's possessions with them, and that way the possessions follow them into the afterlife and so he's saying that you know she came back because this slipper had been knocked under the couch, and they had not found it, and so they didn't burn her slipper, and she 's missing one of them, and so she comes back from the dead and and she suddenly disappears when their little toy dog barks and it startles her and she you know poof she's gone now obviously lucian is in the lover of lies as the as the title suggests is making fun of these beliefs but there wouldn't be any point in writing that if people didn't know that ghosts could be startled, and that ghosts were, for example, afraid of metal. They're afraid of iron. Uh, They're afraid of certain colors, like red. And and they could appear and disappear at will. And so in Luke's story of the road to Emmaus, where Jesus talks to these people on the road and, and explains all these prophecies about himself, but they don't recognize it. And then at, at dinner, he breaks bread, and suddenly their eyes are open, and they go, oh, it's Jesus, and, and immediately, poof, he disappears. Since it's common with ghosts, they appear, disappear, pretty much at will. There are just uh, quite a, I mean, there are quite a number of them. There There is the story, the famous story of Philinian, who is this, uh, young woman who dies before being married that was a big no-no in the greco-roman world uh women were supposed to get married they're supposed to have children that's the purpose of women in that culture the primary purpose is having babies so if you died without being married and having a baby you were you were missing something and you became a restless ghost so Felinian comes back, having never been married. She comes back to her parents' house after she's been buried for quite a long time. And she appears at night and she has uh, sex with this guy who is a guest in the house, a young man named Machates. Eventually, the maid kind of spots them through the door and tells the parents, and then the parents go the next morning to confront Felinian. And when they do finally confront her, she suddenly dies all over again. So they're very disturbed about this, obviously, because they are pretty sure they buried her. So the people of the city go and open the tomb, and her tomb is empty. But it has two things in it. It has a ring and a cup that Machetes had given her on previous nights as tokens of affection. So we have an empty tomb, and we have little tokens left inside of it. And that matches up with the gospel account in Luke and Matthew, I believe also, where the disciples rush to the tomb, and they find the wrappings, Jesus' grave wrappings, are left in the tomb. So it's the same Basic pattern: an empty tomb with the tokens of the person who has disappeared. And you—I mean—you could go on the eating and drinking as a proof of life, uh, the touching. You have to to prove that the person is really back from the dead. They have to be tangible. You have to be able to reach out, touch them, and that's also pretty common. So all of these features like i like i said before do not have to be consciously lifted from different ghost stories incorporated into the gospels because they're already out there they're like the features of the like i said before the of the vampire story if somebody asks you write a vampire story you already know what all the features of vampire stories are you might throw, throw something in there, a little curveball. But basically, it's a vampire story because it conforms to the whole genre of the vampire.
1: Next question. Um, so in your article, you talk about the revenant. Uh, is that the, a restless ghost? And then you just mentioned like a sexual ghost. What are the types of ghosts... Um, were described in different ancient writings?
0: Well, the revenant uh, comes from uh, the French... It's a French, basically, present participle that means being back. So the revenant, as we understand it today in terms of classification, ghost taxonomy, I guess, if you will, is that the, the revenant is a physically solid ghost. It's a ghost that's tangible, that can be touched, that it occupies space, might cast a shadow, etc. There's a story in um, uh, Lucian, uh, uh, the metamorphosis, actually, about this Miller uh, and a crone, and this old crone turns out to be a ghost, and... In the course of the story, you discover that she's solid, and yet after she kills the Miller in this locked room, of course, then she disappears. So it's kind of weird. It's like they're physical, but they don't obey the laws of physics. So Jesus in the Gospel of John appears a couple of times, even though the doors are locked. So obviously he didn't just walk in the door. He just appeared. And yet he's solid and he performs activities of living people. He talks, he walks, he eats fish, so on and so on. And this is the this is a typical kind of ghost in Greco Roman stories, but he's not actually there on one level. It's 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 contradictory and it's bizarre which is typical of ghost stories generally we have modern ghost stories of people who were seen by witnesses who appear to be solid who appear to be engaging in activities of life and then turn out to be dead so it's not something for which there is an explanation in the gospels or in the ghost stories from the Greco-Roman world of the time and then, of course, you have apparitions. The the more typical ghost was familiar with these people. They were they were ghosts that were seen, or they were sensed. They were heard. The in the Lover of Lies there are a couple of cases where a statue comes to life. But the only evidence of the statue being alive is that the, there are strange noises in the house that are then attributed to the statue having come to life and walking around. I think that Lucian was pointing out in this story indirectly that it wasn't something someone saw. It was something it was audible. They heard it and they attributed it or misattributed it to something that wasn't real. And I think that that's that's was well known in the ancient world and it's well known today that people's imaginations run away with them and obviously people in the ancient world understood that some people hallucinate, that some people have overactive imaginations, that some people are easily frightened and they draw the wrong conclusions from their surroundings and that they had that explanation for ghosts just as we do. But there were the point being that there were a wide selection of specters or apparitions, if you will. They could be seen in dreams. In fact, that was probably the most common way of seeing a ghost that's recorded in the ancient world, is that they were seen in dreams. But people in the ancient world had a tendency to think that those dreams were more meaningful than we do. So if we dream about somebody today that's dead, we'd say, well, you know, that we just dreamt that it's not there. But in the ancient world, people tended to take those much more seriously and consider them as real.
1: In in your article, you mentioned the Jewish source, the Sefer HaRasim, which speaks of the ghost of the dead um, spending time in the tombs. How is that related to the first century Jews who followed Jesus and their views about his comeback or his apparitions?
0: The um, Sefer HaRazim, as I recall, was reconstructed um, by the original investigator from a bunch of fragments of uh, material found in Cairo, in the Cairo Geniza, which was the storage room for, typically for scripture, the scripture that had the divine name in it was not was not destroyed when it was worn out. It was simply stored because you didn't want to destroy it. It had the divine name in it. The Cairo apparently had a, a wealth of other material in it, um, some of which I can't remember the gentleman's name right now who originally reconstructed it, um, but he reconstructed it from fragments, put it all back together, and I think that uh, the the current understanding is that he missed some, and that there were some fragments in there that that actually belonged in it that he that he didn't identify correctly, which is not surprising. But one way or the other, the Sefer Harazim probably, uh, although it comes from a time after Jesus, it probably. Uh, reflects beliefs that were around for a very, very long time, probably even centuries before Jesus. And the point about it is that that it accepts the reality of ghosts and that if you wanted to inquire of a ghost, you could go to a tomb and you could do certain things and say certain things, the ghost would appear and answer you. Which brings up an interesting point, because in the ancient world, it was believed that the spirit world knew things that were going to happen in the physical world. They knew that the spirit entities, whether they were demons or ghosts, know the truth about what's going on. And you see that in Mark, where Jesus casts out demons, and they identify him as the Christ, or as the holy one, the son of God, whatever and Jesus rebukes them and tells them not to reveal it so that's the same basic idea of what, of necromancy necromancy literally means consulting the dead a mantis in, in ancient Greek is actually a soothsayer a fortune teller as it were who predicts the future and it was understood widely that spirit entities including ghosts knew what the future was how they know that i i'm not i'm not sure i don't think anybody as far as i know wrote down an explanation for how they were supposed to know what they knew but it was widely accepted that demons ghosts and the word demon, by the way, in Greek is very, very frequently used as a synonym for ghost. There are several other terms, phasma and several others, eidolon, but uh, daemon is is very frequently used as a a synonym for ghost. So basically what we're talking about, Without, without us imposing a category of demons being evil spirits and ghosts being the spirits of dead people, the ancient, ancient people may not have distinguished between them quite that, quite that closely or narrowly. But the long story short is that basically the spirit world knew what was going on really. And if you wanted to find out what was going on really, you had to consult one, a ghost, a demon, or whatever. You had to call up a spirit entity of some kind, and then they would tell you what what was actually happening or what the future would be.
1: Tell us more about the different characters who were shapeshifters in Roman myth and how it relates to the apocryphal works. That speak of Jesus and his disciples.
0: Well, the term shape shifting um, in our culture is typically associated with werewolves and what have you. But in the case of the ancient uh, accounts, it was it was called polymorphy or polymorphism. morphy being the Greek word for form, and poly being many. So, a number of especially uh, Chthonic or, or dark deities like Hecate, for example, could assume various forms. They could assume the forms of animals, they could assume the form of people, uh, they could be large in size, they could, they could change pretty much will. In the Gospel of Mark, there is an ending which is widely regarded as being a spurious ending that was added later. Where the, uh, excuse me, where the text says that Jesus appeared to someone in a different form, the um, apologist Origen, who was writing in the second century. suggested actually that Jesus was polymorphic even in life, that he appeared differently to different people, depending on their intent. But in the Apocryphal Acts and the Apocryphal Gospels that come along in the 2nd and 3rd century, Jesus appears as all kinds of people. He appears as the Apostle Thomas, he appears as a child, he appears as a young boy, he appears in in all kinds of different guises to people. It's interesting that in in the Gospels, in Luke, when he is talking to these uh, disciples on the road to Emmaus, that they don't recognize him. When the disciples, John, I think it is, go to, maybe, I'm not sure whether it's John or Matthew right now, I'd have to look it up, but they go to Galilee, and they're fishing, and Jesus tells them, cast the net in on the other side of the boat, and they haul out this huge haul of fish, and then suddenly they recognize that it's Jesus. But they didn't recognize him previously, so supposedly they recognize him due to the miracle of the large number of fish. So it would, have, it would imply, certainly without specifically saying it, that Jesus looked different on different occasions, after his resurrection, and that would be typical of of other uh, entities such as Hecate, which I mentioned, and and other uh, gods, goddesses who change form more or less at will. And again, I'm not I'm not saying or claiming that uh, that the gospel writers deliberately plagiarized that from from an account somewhere. It was just simply a given. It was the general understanding among people that this is what happened to supernatural entities that if Jesus is a god he's raised from the dead he can transform he can, he can appear however he wants. This is simply part of the culture's currency. It's a g- general understanding. It's in the same way that like I keep going back to this reference because because it seems to fit culturally that people know all these things about vampires, even without maybe having ever read Dracula, for example. They've never read the novel. They may have seen the film adaptation of it, but they have learned through exposure to the general culture what vampires are all about. And so, people in the in the ancient world. Did not even have to be literate. They didn't have to read all this thing, all these things. They simply knew from their parents, they knew from just hearing people talk, from living, hearing stories told about how things were, how ghosts were, how gods were, how they worked, how they appeared, disappeared.
1: Tell us about the figures of Romulus and Apollonius in um, the similarities between Jesus and them. I, I always see the similarities between like Socrates or other um, leaders or philosophers around that time, uh, you know, sacrificing his life and things like that. But uh, from, from your article, there's like clear uh, you know, influence or connection between those two other figures, Romulus and Apollonius.
0: Well, I use that, um, that description of the death and reappearance of Romulus that is taken from uh, Plutarch uh, as just an example of how a historic figure is treated in these so-called histories. Obviously, nobody believes that this was a real history in the sense that we use it. But it was passed off as history, that That Romulus disappeared under suspicious circumstances, possibly murdered, uh the elders of the city told people, you know Romulus is gone now and and he's going to be this uh propitiary spirit called uh, what was it? I just had it on the tip of my tongue um, anyway he's going to be. A spirit that is advocating for you in the afterlife and so let's just be settled with that and so they say okay fine that's what he is then some people are suspicious well maybe Romulus was actually murdered oh, Carinus is what he was called in the afterlife took me a second to pull it up um, so in the afterlife Romulus is going to be this advocate for the city of Rome, but some people are suspicious. Maybe he was actually murdered, and maybe they cut him up, and they smuggled the body parts out in the robes or something. There were several different theories about why Romulus just suddenly couldn't be found anywhere. Then a witness comes along and says, well, you know, I was walking down the road. Here we go with another walking down the road story and here comes Romulus dressed in armor and he looked great and you know I talked to him and he explained what happened and he had to you know go on up to heaven because his time was up and so on and so on but but everything's cool it's all good and everybody's happy cuz he went to the he went to the forum and he swore on it. It was like I put my hand on the bible and I swear this is what I saw and and, and it's all cool. And so that was kind of like okay, it's settled. Now he's, you know, he's in heaven and he's he's watching out for us. And that's a, that's a typical hero story. The other what will, remind me now? What was the other figure that you, Apollonius of Tyana? Yeah, Apollonius of Tyana was a near contemporary of Jesus. He was a very, very famous uh, individual who worked miracles and reformed temples and did all kinds of things. And uh, one of his uh, followers, long after his death, wrote down a long history of Apollonius with all of the comings and goings and the teachings and quotes and what have you Apollonius apparently uh, kind of got into sideways with Domitian who was one of the Roman emperors who was apparently uh, uh, a you know like several Roman emperors borderline crazy paranoid and he was on trial before Domitian, and it was suspected that he might be executed. So when he tells his followers, uh, I'm, "I'm, you know, on trial, and and you should probably keep your distance because Domitian is is a pretty suspicious guy. He might have you arrested." So they kind of, you know, back off. Apollonius comes back, and they're wondering if he's alive or not, or whether they're looking at a ghost, and. Again, the same kind of kind of uh, framework as the Gospels he says, "Well, if you touch me and i 'm solid then i 'm alive and so at that point, you know, oh great he's actually alive he 's not just back from the dead and i I put those two points in the article simply to illustrate that this is this is common currency in this culture of the day that that Luke or John or anyone else didn't have to sit down and and make this up. It's already all out there in terms of these these popular stories of cultural heroes. There are the same stories circulating around this culture about Romulus and, and similar heroes as there are today circulating around about George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. They may or may not be literally true in all of their details but they are things that the culture has come to accept and virtually anybody with a general cultural knowledge can extract from that and build a narrative out of it which is what I'm basically arguing that the gospel writers did
1: do you see a lack of a rationality and consistency uh, between these stories, um, Roman, sto- like New Testament sto- uh, stories, uh, Roman stories, medieval apparitions of saints and virgins? Uh, is it just like an ongoing thing of some type of um, wishful thinking or people um, coming to a state of um, fervor where they? they see all things and then they somehow it becomes canonized or becomes part of the folklore of that religion. But um, does it just keep feeding into the type of superstition or is it just their own personal revelations and part of their own uh, spiritual uh, connection
0: to their faith? That's an excellent question. I have no idea. (laughs) I I mean, I I really, uh, you know, There's a a writer named Hector Avalos who teaches uh, New Testament theology and what have you and has argued that if you're going to accept the uh, post-resurrection apparitions or appearances of Jesus, then why don't you accept the hundreds of witnessed apparitions of the Virgin Mary? And why not? I mean, you could go back through history, and you can find person after person after person who has seen the Virgin Mary. They've seen her. There, and sometimes entire groups of people have seen the Virgin Mary. So, why is it that uh, evangelical scholars, why is it that Baptists and Methodists don't believe that the Virgin Mary has appeared to these people? Why not? I mean, there's easily as many witnesses, as much firsthand experience from people that, that we have seen her, okay, and she appeared to us. Why doesn't that settle it? And again, it's, it's obviously because of what people choose to believe. It's the, it's the evidence that they choose to accept. Personally, I'm, I'm rather agnostic about the whole idea of ghosts. I mean, uh, if you read the ghost literature, even superficially, you know that there are numerous classifications of ghosts, broadly speaking, and that they have been very well documented on several occasions. There is still a Society for Psychical Research in, in America and in England that interviews people, collects these instances, documents them, tries to weed out the people who are crazy, the people who see dead people everywhere, they look in every corner. And they have, you know, some interesting, uh, they have some interesting material that they have produced over the years going back into the 1800s. So the question is, is it real? I guess it depends on what you believe about human consciousness. I guess it depends on what you believe about life after death. It depends on whether you believe that uh, the materialistic uh, scientism, as some people call it, has explained everything. It depends on whether you believe that organisms, including humans, are just elaborate biological machines or whether they're something else. And frankly, I I don't even pretend to know the answers to those questions, and I don't think that that a person completely open to the evidence would venture into that and get extremely dogmatic. For all I know, uh, some of the ghost experiences... If you want to call them that, of Jesus were as real as ghost experiences that people report today. That doesn't mean that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, that he's the Son of God, that he's up in heaven, that he's coming back, or anything else. But it would still, it would still mean that you know Jesus could have been a ghost, just like pretty much anybody else who died could have been a ghost. But at this point, at this far removed. I, I don't see any way that we could possibly know that. In fact, if you look at the gospel accounts, if you read them carefully, you will find this, this thread of doubt in all of them. The gospel of Matthew has the, has the disciples going to Galilee and getting this big commission to preach to all the people on earth, and Jesus is right there, and yet it says, and some doubted." The Gospel of John says that Jesus appeared right there in their midst, that they were overjoyed, but they still didn't believe. You know, the Gospel of Luke is, is telling all of these stories back to back to convince people that Jesus is raised, because obviously there were people in the church in the first hundred years of Christianity who did not believe in resurrection. There were alternative theories about what made Jesus important. The Gnostics didn't need resurrection. The Gnostics believed that Jesus had a spark, a divine spark that came down and the spark went back up to heaven. It didn't need a body. So there was no point in bringing a body out of a tomb if you were a Gnostic. That was actually ridiculous and most people in the ancient world thought the idea of bringing a body out of a tomb was absolutely disgusting it was defiling it was it was, people buried you know humans outside of the city walls they put cemeteries outside the city because the dead were defiling which is of course a you know a public health issue also you didn't want dead bodies who died of plague or something rotting inside you know inside the city you had enough, you know, public health issues as it as it was already, no doubt. But yeah, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't have a a firm opinion about that, even though I tend to believe that these stories were borrowed out of the out of the Greco-Roman culture at large. Uh, you know, I I don't pretend to have a, a a final answer about the reality of ghosts in general, or about life after death.
1: How do you see these ancient um, ghost stories influencing modern day stories? I know you mentioned that there's people doing that research, but um, what are the elements
0: that? Well, here's the weird thing: it's 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 cross cultural, isn't it? I mean, it uh, if you go from one culture to another to another. I believe you find ghost stories. I, I don't know that anybody has officially studied it or tabulated it, but can you name a culture off the top of your head that does not have ghost stories? Uh, do not all of those ghost stories basically share certain broad characteristics so if those ghosts of those ghost stories are coming from cultures that have been isolated? geographically and linguistically for thousands of years then the question is what are ghosts are they if you, there if there has to be some kind of underlying human experience that would generate this i would think is it delusional quite possibly but is it a delusion if it is, then it's a delusion that people that humans in in general suffer universally. If it's not a delusion, then the problem is what is it? It's determining what it what it is in terms of 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 a physical explanation. If you think about it, if you hear a ghost or you see a ghost, there has to be some kind of physical element, doesn't it? Because what is sight or hearing? But a question of physics at the end of the day. So if you see something, either you're hallucinating it, if it's all in your head, that's one explanation. But if it's actually out there, if several people see the same thing at the same time then presumably there's some kind of stimulus out there that is producing that effect on their on their nervous system so what is it and i think that there's a i think there's really a a kind of a no-go area here where it's very difficult for a person within the current scientific community to actually look at these without already having taken a position about it. And and I think that's probably also true in the or definitely true in in religious studies, is that people who come to this question have got have already got an answer to the question in the back of the mind, do they not? They either believe it as a matter of faith, or they discount it as being highly improbable. If I were to come down on on one side or the other, I would discount the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus as being highly improbable, simply because this material was just so easy to borrow, consciously or unconsciously, from the general culture. I mean, all the ideas were all there, they're just they're they're out there for you to absorb. Everybody already understands the parameters of, of of building a narrative like this. You don't have to consciously steal it from you know from another source. But then again, at the other hand, that's simply that's simply an opinion. At the end of the day, it's it's you know it's what I happen to think. I happen to think that because I'm critical of Christianity's overall theological claims, which I think is is pretty obvious to anybody who who reads the kind of things that I write.
1: Thank you for listening. We will be back next week with another episode of The Mystic
0: and the Skeptic. Show descriptions and content are available online on our Facebook page and on soundcloud.com.
1: We would like to thank the Independent Media Club at the farm for their continued support and Radio Free Nashville for their technical guidance and assistance.
0: The opinions expressed in this program do not necessarily reflect those of anyone but the person speaking. They do not necessarily reflect the opinions of what's radio or the farm.